Right, good evening everyone. Uh, let me start this meeting firstly by asking you all to turn your mobile phones off so I don't have to shout, shout at you when they ring and interrupt what I'm sure is going to be an excellent speech. My name is Toby Dodge. I'm the director of the Middle East Centre um, and a professor in the International Relations Department. But more importantly, I'd like to welcome to the London School of Economics a friend and someone I have a, a great deal of admiration for, Lachlan Feely, who currently is the senior advisor to the Iraqi Prime Minister, Haider Abadi. And uh, to show how influential and connected he is, last time I was lucky enough to have a meeting with the Prime Minister, Lachlan just wandered in as though he was a member of the family. So I think that's indicative of, of uh, his familiarity. But I think more importantly for the evolution of Iraq, after 2003. I don't want to offend any of my friends in the Iraqi diplomatic corps, but I, looking at Lukman's role as the, Ameri the Iraqi ambassador to the United States, I think it's clear that he's probably been the most successful, certainly the most high-profile ambassador that post-regime change Iraq has had, and I assume, though I don't know, he was equally successful when he was uh, Iraq's ambassador to Japan from 2010 to 2013, and he certainly left a big pair of shoes to fill for his successor recently arrived in Washington from Paris. Now, Lukman and I fell into conversation in Iraq about his interpretation, analysis of Iraq and his vision for the Iraqi future, and the result is this publication uh, on a desk in front of you, Social Harmony and Iraqi Perspective. Uh, Ambassador Faley will uh, describe this for the next 40 minutes. We'll then throw it open to questions uh, and bring the meeting to close at 7.30. So without further ado, Ambassador, please take the stand. Okay. Good evening, everybody. I'm honored to be here today. Uh, it's the first time for me in LSE, uh, and it's the first time I publish a paper in such a way. So I'm honored to, to be asked. I'm honored to uh, present this. I'm honored also to try to convince you that the type of thinking we have traditionally done about Iraq and the region is somewhat uh, short and might be even short-sighted, and I hope today, following my talking about the paper and you reading it thereafter, uh, you will be thinking in a different way. My approach to this is primarily driven from somebody who's a practitioner of politics, worked in leadership of communities for at least three decades, membership of political parties for three decades, somebody who worked in the corporate world in United Kingdom and others and worked with, within UK government and have a, a, a collective or like a comprehensive grasp of development, whether social development, political development, economical development. And this paper today will try to highlight where are the issues, what do we need to watch out for, what we should not do, and what we should, basic assumptions which we make, which need to be challenged. The paper you have is all in narratives. 
Uh, it's hard for me as a mathematician to try to, to talk to you communicating in, in writing. But in diagrams, pictures, that's the easy way out. It's less writing for me to do and certainly much more uh, expressive of what I want to convey. So apologies about the presentation. It's totally different to what you have, but I think it's more beneficial. The key question we have is, as a person and then as a society, what are the, how do we go about developing ourselves collectively? What, who, why, how? These are basic questions you ask yourself when you talk about development individually, let alone when you talk about the collectives. The collectives might be, becomes harder when you look at a diverse society as Iraq. Iraqi society is unique in a sense it has six or seven civilizations on top of each other. None was able to annihilate the previous one. So you have signatures of each of those civilizations still in the character. I can assure you, if you ask an Iraqi, and if he only reflects one of those civilizational signatures, then you will have a problem. That, that's not a real Iraqi. A real Iraqi usually have the mix of the tribes versus the city, the religious aspect, the community aspect, the intellect versus the, the countrymen. It's a mix of characters. All have their own signature on him, religiously as well, culturally as well. So in a way, it's a, a complicated creature. It is sophisticated. It has higher expectations than normal. It may not have enough understanding of what it takes to work collectively to transform the society. What you see now is a manifestation of decades of brewing of the society in the wrong mix. How do you go untangling it? I'm trying to give you an answer today. I certainly am not looking at it purely from a geopolitical or social. Unfortunately, maybe I'm wrong, but what I would say boldly is there is no science which reflects what I'm talking about today. It might be a new way of thinking and approaching it. I'm not a diplomat in a sense of career diplomat, so I'm not going to be politically correct all the time. But at the same time, I am a practitioner of what it needs to transform the society. One of the key challenges I have identified in working in Iraq and in Iraq politics for three and a half decades is that very few people understand the scale of the challenge to transform the society collectively. You can have dictators who enforce a certain paradigm. You can have democracies, loose democracies, where nobody gets their way and there is no control, as we have now. And you can have a, a proper mix where you can manage the politics. So when you start with, how do I develop myself collectively, two key questions comes in. Who has authority for this transformation? Who has power to implement that? transformation. I distinguish between them because you can have a, a religious clergy with the authority, but people, if they don't listen to him, he would not have the power. You can have a senior official, whether he's a minister, a prime minister, a president, a director general, a police officer, with the authority, but if people don't listen to him, he would not have the power. You can have a power person without that authority, but people listen to him. So let me give you an example. Let's say I'm a, a hard, let's say I'm a, a string follower of Catholicism. And I live in Brazil, 
or I live in Finland, or I live at the Vatican, Vatican City. In, at, where do I follow the, 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 the directives, instructions, guidance of the Pope? In Brazil, as a culturally, I will follow him. He has that power on me. In Finland, he may not have that power on me. At the Vatican Valley, at the Vatican City, he has the ability, the authority, and so on. So I cannot do whatever against Catholicism in that area. But in Finland, I have the freedom to do it. So here, who has the power and who has the authority is an important source we need to understand and distinguish. Then I will talk about the three parameters required to, for you to take into account all the time. Whatever actions you do, you always look at three issues at the same time. They may have different weights, they may have different uh, strength in your, in your beliefs, but they are. A, the culture. You look into the culture aspect all the time. And here I'm homing in and explaining the culture as pride versus shame, as the basic binary view of, of culture. It's much more complicated, I know. What I'm saying is, these are the two ends of the pendulum you look at. These actions you're taking, does it give you pride within socially, or do you feel shameful? And how do you go about it? That's always you think about it, whatever you do. Second is the state. You think about the lawful and unlawfulness of what you want to do. Is it legal or is it not legal? Where are you doing it? Let's say, for argument's sake, one of you want to smoke. Would he be able to smoke here in this environment? Culturally, he might be unacceptable. Certainly, it's illegal, I, I'm assuming. It still is. So, to that effect, the legal aspect is always thought about. If you feel that you have no, the state have no control on you, you will breach the legality or not, up to what you want. So you always think about the legal aspect or not, or there is no status, there is no rule against it or for it. Then you have a, an area of freedom. Third is religion. And somebody says, well, I'm, I'm religious or not, I'm, I'm disregarding that. I'm homing in into the ethical aspect of religion. People without religious beliefs have ethics. That's the basic DNA development fabrics of, of a human being or societies. People want to associate with the ethics or an ethicality. Even if you are in a mafia or in a ISIS or whatever, you still have certain ethics you want to adhere to or not. So to that effect, these three parameters are always thought about. How ethical or not you are, how legal or not you do, how pride, culturally or not, you, or shameful you do. These three parameters, with the, the two factors associated with them, you think about them 24-7 in whatever actions you want to do. And it's, it's, sometimes it's, social, it's, it's consciously, sometimes subconsciously you do it. You always think about how do others think about it. You always think about what's the legality of what I'm trying to do. What you might do, by the way, is something which is illegal. You go to a country where it is legal so that you feel in harmony, at ease in what you want to do. Then you have the questions. Who has authority of these three parameters, these three dimensions or foundations? Is it the state? Is it the religious, ethical institutions? 
Is it the cultural institutions, NGOs, tribes, whatever you want to call them, in relation to culture? Who has the authority to give me the guidance, to gel us together to the development of how you want to go about it? Then you have the issues. What are the sources for these three? How do you make up culture? How do you make up religion? How do you make up state laws? And I give simple examples. These are not the full list. But you think about the demographic factor. How does that impact cultures and societies? How does it impact religious doctrines and certainly in legislations? The technology impact on societies. It has transformed culturally, where it was rude before to talk over the phone, now it's rude to talk to somebody and not look at the phone, as a simple example, specifically with smartphones. So education, how does lack of education or having education, how does that feed into the three foundations I was talking about, whether it's culture, religion, and state. Collectively, they may lead to a new legislation, a new type of religion, a new type of uh, uh, sort of ethics being provided, a new type of trend and culture. And then the question is, who has the authority and who has the power to change? Economy and others are always factors. Unfortunately, whenever I showed this paper or draft to political scientists from the West, they kept saying to me, economy should be a circle. I said, no, economy feeds into something else. You don't think about economy 24-7. But these three factors, I challenge you that you think about them all the time in, in different ways. If the collective agree to it, you think about them. If you consciously think about it, if you want to take a new action, if you want to create a new narrative, you think about those aspects. How do the others feel about it? The paper, by the way, is all about social harmony, not individual harmony. That's for me to do in a, in a different paper I'm writing. But for social harmony, i.e. collectively, you think about that aspect. Of it. Then you have the issues of history. What's the impact of your history on you, on your societies? How, how shackled you are or free from your history in dealing with issues? So people may stop doing things because historically they are not used to doing it. It's new for us. You are creating a new, uh, new narrative which we should not even touch. And here you have driving, women driving in a, in a country, or allowed or not, and other aspects of it. Just a simple example of where you talk about the history. You are breaking new laws and regulations. You are breaching our father's sort of uh, heritage, and that's uh, not right. Language is also a developing factor which leads into legislations and so on. When the three interact on a certain narrative, that's when you have a harmony in that specific narrative. Let's say, for argument's sake, you have an animal, a dog, and you own a dog, and you like that dog. You take it to a country where the legislation does not help you in maintaining that relationship with the dog. Or culturally, it's acceptable to eat that dog or others as well. Where do you feel you are in harmony with yourself, with the dog, and therefore you have a healthy relationship with him, socially? It depends where you are. If you are in the UK, you go to, let's say, Korea, you go to 
Iraq, you go somewhere else. The relationship with the animal is different. Let's say you have a certain sexual orientation and you want to be productive in that society. If you go to California, it's different than if you go to Karachi, than if you go to some Europe. How supportive you are, how productive you are in that society in relation to your sexuality becomes, do you feel in harmony with that? You may not feel that you are productive in that society and therefore you, you immigrate or you force yourself to go to another country where you can practice that sexuality free from shackling. Here I'm not talking about the right or wrong. I'm talking about being productive in a society. For the society to function, you need enough of a harmony for them to be productive. Otherwise, if everybody is pulling in different directions, you will not be able to produce. In Iraqi perspective, the question we have is how much are we in harmony between the state, between the cultures, and between the religious establishment and religious narratives? On human rights, dogs' rights, animal rights, tree rights, any aspect of rights, collectively, how much in harmony are we? If we are not, then we are not a very productive society and therefore we have more zero sums. If we are, then we, become, we can have a faster machine, a more efficient machine of producing development in a society. Then I'll look at it, these diagrams are not, in the, as I said, but it's, it's, it's my mathematical model of it in a way. It's different countries have different weight to the three factors. You may say certain societies is more religious oriented. Others are more culture oriented. Certain are state oriented. So if I look at Japan as a country I lived in and I experienced during the Fukushima and others, I could see clearly that the government has a very strong weight and that rule of law prevails. Then the culture than the, the religious establishment, which is more philosophical than uh, religious in the sense of we know in Iraq. If I look at Libya as an example, it's tribal-oriented, then you have the issues of religion, then you have the state. If I look at Saudi Arabia, it's religious-oriented, then the culture, then the state. The weight of the state to lead the society, to engineer the society, to be creative is much smaller. Their ability to, to transform is much weaker. Their engine, but from a religious establishment, it's not. If I look at USA, it's primarily driven by the state, then you have the issues of so there you have the issues of religion, then you have issues of cultures. If USA is culture, religious, if it's reversed, you know what does that mean? That means every community in USA, which is a collective, will have more say and less working together than they do now. How do you get these migrants, immigrants, others in the United States, which is a collective of different identities, to work with each other, if it's only driven by culture? 
it will be very difficult. So hence, the rule of law is an important foundation for the state of the United States because that's the only way you can gel these communities to say, wherever we agree, you have to implement, regardless of what your ethno-sectarian background and beliefs are. So that's an important aspect to bear in mind. The other, the other question to watch out for is, do these circles complement each other or do they contradict each other? If they contradict in a sense of culturally, let's say for argument's sake, let's take an example of in Japan, government, culture, and religion. If the culture stands against the government and people believe in culture, What's the likelihood of you getting new legislations implemented? Very few. In the Japanese perspective, they, call, they, they have the best efficient machinery in the world because they complement each other very high. If you're looking at the, say, let's look at the, the Libya situation. If religion and culture, if religiously it's against the culture, how productive that society can be? Difficult. If you provide a new narrative against cultures in Libya, how effective can you be? Difficult. The key issue to watch out for is, are these three circles complementary to each other, or are they contradicting each other? Do they, so in the Iraqi perspective, one of the key challenges we have is, to certain tribes, if they stood against the state, they feel pride. They stood against the state. They stopped the state. In the Japanese perspective, they feel shameful that they don't stand against the state. Why? Because breaking the law is never culturally not acceptable, ethically not acceptable. In our Iraqi situation, standing against the law might be pride. That's, they, are, they are heroes. And that's the problem we have to bear in mind. So it's important to understand that the, the basic assumption that the state has to lead everything is wrong. It's also need to know which institutions do you have to influence to change that society? What's the weight of that society? And how contradicting or, or complementary those institutions are between themselves, the various circles of influence and power. Then the three requirements for developing social cohesion are three. You always need to have a need to do this. So a need to do means what? Means a society feels benefit from implementing whatever new laws and regulations you want to implement. There has to be a need for it. If there is no need, people will say, what's this legislation about? I don't need it. Why do you create something I don't need? Why do you increase my disharmony by introducing something I don't need? On the contrary to it, if you only bring in something you need, society will say, well, the government looks after me. The religious establishment is looking after my needs. I'm important. They're not doing it for themselves. The other issue is a want to do. It's not forced on you. Dictatorship creates a paradigm where things are forced on society. Dictatorships create a paradigm where things are not needed by the society, but wanted or desired by the dictator. Here, people say, okay, this social contract is not working for me. 
Why? Because my needs are not being fulfilled. My desires are not also being fulfilled. The third one is ability to do. Do you have the right environment to, to implement this? You're talking about democracy in X, Y, Z societies, or Z, as America call it, but you don't have the ability, the institutions, the culture, the, the infrastructure to implement that. What's the point of you forcing legislations on me without you giving me the right infrastructure? So here, the ability to do is a prerequisite for a harmony to take place. Ability to do does mean that you can't just put decrees and orders by parliament or prime minister or president without understanding that could you, when you once you introduce a legislation, can you implement it? Because if you can't implement it, you are increasing disharmony in the society. You're bringing another restriction, you're shackling myself without the ability to transform. Okay. Yeah, I think we're right. So there, when you look at the Iraqi example, the big problem you have, I have another paper which I look at the American example and the Japanese example, and I hope to write about British example as well. The area in the Iraqi example, area of interaction, is extremely small. Others will have a much bigger three circles interacting, more or less on top of each other in Japan, example, which is the most harmonious when I look at the various societies. Anthropology is my hobby, by the way, so I look at these issues all the time. So, so when you look at the Iraqi example, it's the least area of interaction where everybody, the whole society, agree on certain narratives. Why? Because the state requirements was all about dictatorship, all about the needs and the desires of the dictator, or the military rule, or whomever it was. And therefore, his legislations and everything else, we have thousands of legislations which all talk about protecting the state, a police state. I.e., if you say something bad about Saddam Hussein or somebody else, you'll be imprisoned or whatever. So you have the state issues. All the majority of the legislations, even by the way, after 2003, we still have a problem with it. We still don't give legislations which are reflective of the needs, desires, and abilities of the society. And the other issue is religion. Religion in the current paradigm of Iraq is problematic. You have so many institutions who do not work with each other. You have things like Eid, prayer of Eid. Everybody has it differently. You don't feel in, in harmony with that situation. And you also have that religious pulling in different directions without due consideration to the status of the state and the cultural aspect of the society. I'm not saying you should be irreligious or not religious, I mean, in Iraq. No, what I'm saying is the religious establishment have a major role to play to help the harmony in a society. And then you have the culture aspect of it, which is multi-ethnicity, multinationality, and so on, each one of them. The problem is not in the diversity, by the way. You can't have diverse societies. You have it in India, you have it elsewhere. It's how much do they agree on areas of interaction? How much on that aspect, which is a human right, an animal right, a, a woman's right, a child right, whatever is right it is, how much rubbish collection, how much the state provides the right narrative for it? 
the religiously makes it unethical to not to play a positive role. Culturally makes it unacceptable for you not to, to throw your rubbish outside and put it in the right place and so on. So that's the key issue. We need to increase areas of commonalities between the three. The weight of them is different. The drivers are different. We need to change that. The problem we have is goes back to each one of them thinking they have the power and they thought and therefore they have the authority and the power to change. And that's the problem because not enough dialogue taking place between them. And in fact, we need to understand that you cannot change the state in Iraq without serious discussion with the religious establishment to help you in that situation. And the same with the tribal leaders and other narratives as well. Without having that dialogue, the state alone cannot manage the change. It's as simple as that. And you can have another 50 years of what we have post-2003. It's not just about freedom. It's not just about governance. It's the state being able to influence other entities to have a bigger role. Then I look at the, the examples, I hope, in your paper. I look at leaderships as a, an important need or, or requirement for a successful uh, social cohesion. The different leaders, I go and map where are we with the various, the various leaders and where are they in this perspective. And the simple map I have is, let's say, uh, Desmond Tutu in South Africa. A, a bishop, highly respected clergy, created a culture of tolerance, his influence became more. You can have a normal clergy who is here, but Desmond Tutu will be here. He can provide a cult, he's created a certain culture. But Mali, whom I am a fan of, is here. You know? Although some people say he's a religious man, or not religious, he's a, a prophet of a type. But in reality, his, his influence is there. He cannot influence. He didn't have any religious credentials. He certainly had no state credentials. And then, let me give you a different example. I think you agree on those aspects. But let me give you that. Margaret Thatcher, she was able, she came in as a state lady, or state person, and then created a certain culture of Thatcherism, she has a lot of influence in these two circles. Prime Minister uh, Tony Blair did not create a culture. So he's, he's, he's in that, he followed them. Let me look at Khamenei and Khomeini of Iran. Khomeini of Iran is in the center because he, a state, has a credential, religious credentials, and certainly created a culture of a revolution of the type. Khamenei can no way copy him. Because why? Because he, he didn't create a culture, he just followed the law. Hence, whomever is in the center, whether it's Japanese emperor, Prophet Muhammad, others, who has ability, Mursi of Egypt, who has ability to, of the state, he has the religious credentials, he can lead changed societies. Arab Spring leaders, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, they are here. Why? Because they already have infrastructure. Hezbollah of Lebanon, they're here because they have the infrastructure of culture. They don't need, they created all these NGOs, all these issues with social working and so on. They have certain controls of the state, and certainly they are religiously credentials. Nobody questions their credentials. 
So that's the key issue you need to watch out for. Why would you have, how do you want to do? The problem we have is we think that people in the state should be able to manage this. They can't. They don't have the, they haven't wear the t-shirt, as uh, you guys call it. They have not got the credentials to lead society because they are only statement. Unless the people think that statement have to lead, that's a different issue. In Iraq, we don't have yet an understanding of the social contract required for the state to lead. Then I look at the dictatorship. What's the issues of dictatorship? The, one of the biggest distractions of the dictatorship, by the way, the Quran talks about Pharaoh uh, of Egypt a lot as a theme of dictatorship. Dictatorship problem is that it does, it systematically destroys the fabric of the society for their own wishes and desires. Societies become hypocritical. Societies become self-centered. Societies become short-sighted. Societies become looking after themselves. Why? Because dictatorship is systematic. In Iraq's situation, the longer the dictator we had, the more destructive the society is. And that's a, a problem we have in the dictatorship. By the way, here I'm not talking about good or bad. I'm not talking about sort of is it right or no, wrong. This harmony issue, you can have the most effective harmony which produces what Japan had pre-Second World War or where Hitler came in. Perfect harmony. That's another issue. Maybe we can talk about that. What does the perfect harmony, what are the drawbacks to perfect harmony? The problem you have is when societies are dealing with that, they will go and revolt. And the revolution are the cleansing process of the society to cleanse their body from the heritage of what they have. Do you need revolutions? It's a result of disharmony in a society. It's a turning point of that. Then we say, I, in the paper I talk about democracy. We think in Iraq we need substantial amount of democracy because we need the tolerance which democracy provides for us to coexist with each other. Without democratic institutions, without democratic culture, we will not have the ability to accommodate the differences we have. We're not going to have we're going to have, well, I don't know, let's say for argument's sake, 30% Sunnis, 40% Sunnis, 60% Shis. That type of numbers will not change significantly. So we need to know how to coexist with each other. Christians as part of Iraq, that's a reality of Iraq. We need to accommodate that. Kurds as part of Iraq, we need to accommodate that. But these are the simple aspects of the problem. Tribes of Iraq, we, go, we have to accommodate tribalism in Iraq. And then you go back to urbans and cities. And by the way, one of the parameters we have in Iraq is, is he from outside or is he from inside? Is he, did he live the, 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 the worst years of the 90s with a sanctions years, or did he not? These are people thinking about you, for, for them to have harmony with you or not. These are some of the parameters they think about. So democracy is an important foundation, a, a pillar for us to be able to move. Why? Because it gives us the tools we need more than anything else for us to accommodate social cohesion. It's a painful process. It's, it, it on itself, it will not work. We need other tools with it. And to that effect, we need rule of law. 
is one of the most important prerequisites for success of Iraq. Rule of law, whatever that law is, we need to agree on. We need to understand that we have thousands of legislations in Iraq now, which is to do with the, with the police state. We need to get, we need to cleanse ourselves from that. We have hundreds of legislations. We need to get our order if we are after social, if we are after market economy. We need to put in place. So we need to substantially have a much vibrant parliament, much productive, efficient parliament than we have now, and that can only be done by having the. We need for a rule of law, desires for a rule of law, and certainly the ability to do rule of law. Otherwise, I can assure you, what we have now will prolong for a long, long time to come. I'm, I'll nearly finish, but I will say that these are the pictures of uh, the Tokyo Marathon I run in. And it's just to highlight that what I'm talking about is a marathon. It's a long, long road required, where substantial amount of collaboration and cooperation needed between the various societies to be able to transform and to achieve that. It can't happen overnight. It can't happen by saying, I will go and run the marathon now without preparing for it. It requires a lot of hard work by the various players involved in it. In a marathon, by the way, to complete, the mindset has to be, I am not competing against others, I'm competing against myself. Otherwise, in a marathon, there is always somebody who does better than you. And when you see that the world record is, I think, two minutes, five, sec five minutes or something, two hours, five minutes, you think, well, he must be on a you know, 20 kilometer an hour for two hours. Imagine that, running it. So how fast you have to be. You can't beat that. So you have to go in a marathon mentality with a ability. I am doing it for myself. I may beat my own numbers, but I want to achieve and get there alive by the end of the 20, 42 kilometers, 195 meters. That's what you need to do. And finishing it is what we need to think about. And I think I'm finished now. So. I think the first thing to say is that a senior national Iraqi figure, in my interpretation, has just called for uh, a kind of a cultural, religious uh, tolerance and cosmopolitanism, which I think is to be celebrated. And I think the analysis is fascinating, but I want, as the first question, to push you on how we get there. So Iraq's facing provincial and national elections, previous elections, you could argue, drove it into civil war in 2005 and exacerbated the situation uh, over, over this chain of elections. So if you or when you advise the prime minister, you lay out this, the, the PowerPoints of your analysis and he says, all right, ambassador. How do I arrive here? How do I bring the cultural, the religious, and the state into harmony? Or who will do it for me? Well, he has to assume first that he doesn't have the, the magic wand to resolve it by himself. It has to be a collective. It has to be an outreach to the institutions, in which you sell to the institutions. You have the, 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 you have the way to work with me to get this. I can't do it alone. 
they have to feel that they have a stake in your success. At this moment, everybody is pulling on their own powers, and therefore they do not feel there is a stake. The other aspect of it is don't introduce any legislation without consideration to the religious and social and other aspect of it as well. It's impossible. It's uh, destructive to, to promote legislations. So what you need to do is focus on one or two core examples where you need to bring in social scientists, religious uh, anthropologists, and others to work with you in enhancing your legislations to reflect the need, desires, and the abilities of the society. As is now a wide net of this, what you mean, disorganized legislations where people don't know what are the priorities. Is it alcohol being banned, or is it terrorism fought, or is it taxation, or others. The scale of the challenge in Iraq is tremendous. It, it is really. You have to substantially change. The Iraqis have an ambitious project. They may not understand the scale of preparation for that project. They may believe that if only we do this, well, in reality, I'm saying if only you need to do this, that, 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 then you can be a productive society. So as a prime minister advisor, I would say this is a long project. You need gradually to say time is with you or not in this aspect. Are you bringing the tribal and religious and cultural institutions? If cultural institutions do not exist, work on finding them, creating them and therefore they can help you in the society. As a state by yourself, you are the weakest part or chain, and we are the weakest link in that chain. Don't overburden yourself by taking responsibility for areas you cannot. You need to work with the, you need to decentralize decision making in a lot of issues to the institutions who are relevant for it. So you need to not look at this in a dictatorship heritage where the prime minister is the savior of the country. It can't work. Certainly, you need to be a, have a team to drive this. Those who look after the various the advisors who can help you in this aspect of it. So, people's expectations need to be managed by understanding the, some of the scale of the challenge. What I'm talking about may not be surprising to the Iraqis, but what might surprise them is that I say to them, that's your responsibility. Don't expect the state to do it alone. They will say, no, no, it's a state. We're used to the state to take ownership. I can assure you, the state does not have the mechanism. It has overburdened. It hasn't got the horsepower to pull this carriage on its own. Okay, more questions. Yes, the first person, Kashmir, you sit at the back. Can you wait for the microphone? To wait for the microphone. Could you wait for the microphone, please? For the simple reason... Your name, please, sir. Not good at that. <laughs> uh, for the simple reason that... You just state your name first, and then we'll... Yeah, my name is Case Hamza. I'm financial advisor. I'm part member of the Iraq Society, actually. Um, I think Dr. Rukman missed a, a very vital point, which is economic power or means to influence things. I think, w would he, for example, imagine Hezbollah existing without uh, heavy sort of Iranian contributions or uh, uh, financial support? 
I doubt it. And I think every, everyone, every dictator has suppressive means, but at the same time has economic power, the revenue sources to control the people around him and the security forces that sort of protect him. And without that economic power, I don't think anything is, is, uh, is viable, actually. Going back to even the tribal uh, system of, of uh, social system of tribalism, uh, I think it's uh, it's very difficult to keep the peasants sort of happy and, and contented without some sort of distribution of, of the produce uh, to them in a sort of satisfactory and agreeable manner. And I, I think this is why you, you see revolts uh, amongst the peasants throughout history because they haven't they didn't get their fair share of, of, uh, of the produce or product or whatever they were producing and hence the social revolutions and so on and so forth. I didn't but I said, I said it's not a foundation, it's a factor in, which leads to legislations, leads to culture being created leads to certain uh, religious uh, decrees being passed on or not. I understand that, uh, what's his name? Fukushima, uh, uh, not Fukushima, Fukuyama. Fukuyama in his books, I'm Japanese, so Fukushima. Fukuyama in his books talks about that, uh, in his, one of the latest books, talks about that uh, in the medieval times, the, the Pope of Rome wanted to have controls of the tribal societies. So they talked about not marrying your cousins as a way of diluting tribal tribalism in Europe and having control of it. I do not dispute the, the, ability, the influence of, of uh, economical power. I don't dispute that. But what I'm saying is to have an efficient machinery, it's a factor you have to take into account. But let me give you an example. <clears throat> Iraqis never had an issue of money for eight years with their uh, oil being 100 plus, 100 dollars plus. No, they have now. But what I'm saying is they were not in harmony eight years ago. You can buy yourself, the problem with dictatorship is, forget about money, let's say fear. It's a, it's a similar uh, currency, fear or money. Let's say for argument's sake. Fear or money, for a while you can influence. Is it sustainable? It's not. So the issues of money is not the, it's not the primary driver. In Japanese perspective, pride is more important. Teamwork is more important than increase my salary. If you increase my salary so much from my colleagues, I don't want that in the Japanese market because I need to be slightly similar to my colleagues so that we can work together. In Western orientation, maybe you want to it's more self-centered societies than, the, for example, the Japanese model. So economically it's a factor. I don't, I'm not disputing that. It can entice. It can make life easier. But I I think it's a paracetamol versus an actual problem. It alleviates some of the pain. It doesn't sustain it. You can buy your way out to certain problems. We can, if we, by the way, in Iraqi perspective versus the Gulf perspective. The Gulf bought the way out of outsourcing a lot of the issues they have to Western companies and others. Iraqis didn't do that for whatever reason. So you can buy your way out, but is it sustainable? The Gulf countries now finding out with all prices being down, that that model is not is not working. So I don't dispute the issues of finance or money or, or or economical challenges. It's a good way. But I'm saying is 
for it to be sustainable, you need to persuade the society in, a, to, in the long run and the long view of it. Right, yes, you show with the glasses. Hi, Ambassador. Thank you very much. My name is Ziyat uh, Mohsin. I'm the president of the King's College London Middle East North Africa Forum. Um, my question links slightly to what the gentleman before me uh, referred to. And in looking at Iraq, we can see it's a minefield of, uh, of external forces trying to wedge their own interests within the state. And during your presentation, you refer strongly to how the state is one of the main contributing factors to uh, social harmony and the way in which the government interacts with culture and uh, and religion now bearing in mind these external influences how do you how does a government go about trying to I guess excise these external influences and focus on building itself without any kind of external factors affecting its own progression thank you why would you expect that the external factor is a negative factor why can it not be a positive factor where technology skill sets and everything else can be done if everything is in Included in your own country alone, isolated, do you have enough uh, raw material to develop your society, technology-wise, uh, skill sets, and so on? Excuse what, me. Um, my my main my main question was referring mainly to Iranian. Saudi I don't know. It doesn't matter. Movement. You're talking about uh, geopolitical uh, interference by others, which, which which is detrimental. What I'm saying is, if you don't get your harmony in the right manner, you, regardless of whether external or internal, you cannot develop. Even, if, let's say, for argument's sake, we say we, we have an iron curtain put against Iraq on externally. Could we Iraqis, if we don't have enough formulas of tolerance internally to listen to each other, could we get our act together? We wouldn't. We need different mechanisms of tolerating the other, accepting the other, accommodating the other, whatever the other is. The biggest problem in Iraq now we have is people do not want to accommodate the other. The other might be tribal, the other might be religious, different denomination, and so on. So we need to have a different hat where we tolerate as a key skill sets. Otherwise, if we look at this as a, outside from outside, it's useful to talk about an imaginary or real enemy from outside, whether it's USA or Iran or Turkey or others. It's useful for certain level of cohesion. I give you that. But is that sustainable? It's not. Because then you'll find out, well, the enemy was not from outside. The enemy is with our inability to tolerate, uh, to accommodate each other. That's what we need to do. It's a very fast way of uh, killing uh, this uh, sort of diversity by saying it's all to do with the enemy from outside. You can do that. And it might be dictators do that all the time. Wars are created for the sake of uh, sort of uh, uniting states societies, but we need to create a more sustainable formula moving forward. Right. Yes, the, the lady there with the glasses and then the gentleman and then the lady there. 
Hello, Abigail Feynman-Rauch. Um, thank you very much. So the model that you gave us with the three uh, uh, elements is a very positive model, but I wondered even to get to that point, is there a need for some kind of reconciliation process to rebuild the trust that would make these things necessary? And also, if I can also ask you, you talked about um, the perils of uh, introducing religious legislation. So would you say, referring to the uh, law in, uh, passed last about this time last year on conversion, where um, if an adult converted, their yeah. children automatically converted to Islam. Um, was that a mistake to have passed that law? As far as I know, even the religious establishments, those laws were not uh, thoroughly thought about, and that imp the actual scenarios does not accommodate for it. So it was to do with uh, whether it was ISIS, forcing people there for their family. And, and as far as I know, when I asked religious uh, clergy about it, the scenario cannot create, cannot be done. So that scenario does not exist. So you, you, they more or less created a legislation for an imaginary scenario, not a real scenario. I, I can assure you of that. And let me give you an example. It talks about, for example, when you uh, uh, conversion. The conversion, is it the parent or the mother? So that was one aspect of it, the scenarios. In, in, within Islam, which one is it? I asked religious clergy about this, away from the government, and they said that the legislation itself does not accommodate the actual scenarios of what's taking place. However, even the, those in the government and those religious men who are engaged in the government said it's, uh, it's, out of, uh, it's insensitive and definitely out of date, that legislation. So I, think, I don't think it will be implemented. And that's a typical example example, by the way. What you just said is a typical example of introducing legislation without due consideration to, for scoring political points or being more royal than the king, if that's the right word to use, than an actual uh, helping harmony in the society. What was your first question? Apologies, I didn't write it. Reconciliation. Now, the issues of reconciliation is that trust it's like any other relationship you want to build, where there's no strategic one. You have to go with a transactional relationship. So you need to build uh, confident building measures. My proposal here, for example, is focus on one or two narratives and get the right formula for it. I think in the paper I talk about citizenship as a, an, a narrative. What does citizenship mean religiously? What does citizenship mean from a state perspective? And what does citizenship mean culturally? If they are not complementary, then we have issues with citizenship. If they are, for example, the state looks at citizenship as rules and uh, sorry, uh, rights and responsibilities of the citizen and the state toward each other. There are no other. So it's very cruel, very straightforward. Religious aspect of citizenship is selflessness, it's other obligations, it's day after scenario, it's sorry, day, day, day after sort of uh, uh, aspect of it. For example, you do this for good, and in the next life, you will get rewarded. The state doesn't look at you in that perspective. That's a good sign. But if religious aspect of citizenship says, break the law, you have no problem because God will reward you, then that becomes a contradiction relationship. And then, so, so, so that's an important, which means that we need social scientists heavily engaged in our discourses to change our society. At this moment, by the way, a psychiatrist will find it hard to find jobs in Iraq. 
social scientists find it hard to find jobs in Iraq. In the scale of what I'm talking about, I'm not talking about just being a lecturer in university as simple as that. I'm talking about full level grant projects to talk about changing narratives, such as citizenship. Otherwise, if we don't have a commonality of view of what citizenship is about, whether you pay your electricity bill or not, then unfortunately, everybody is pulling in different directions. And everybody thinks they have the power because the clergy told them so, or the tribal man told them so, or their grandfather told them so, that this is the way we do things and we're not going to change. It's, it's a different perspective. Sure. Sure. Yes. Uh, thank you, Ambassador, for your talk. My name is Tyler Jansen. I'm a master's student here at the LSE in the International Relations Department. Um, as an American and somebody who just lived in Japan for a year, I agree with some of your characterizations of both of those countries. Um, I want to return to something you said in the middle of your talk about uh, how social harmony takes place within a narrative and your ultimate solution being a decentralized approach. Let's use these pillars and institutions that already exist. To what extent, by working with different pillars, do you get people to agree on that same narrative and create social harmony? What are the challenges for getting people to agree on what the narrative itself is? Well, you start by if the religious establishment think this is what the rule of God and overrides the state rules, then you have an issue there. And specifically, if they think that these rule of gods are untouchable. So where, where do you start with that? So here you have an example of the U.S. perspective, abortion. Forget about Iraq, abortion in the USA. If the religious establishment thinks that this abortion is, 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 is immoral, uh, therefore, what do you do? You know, what happens here? You go to certain countries, whether they go to Ireland or somewhere else, or, or you go away from Ireland, I mean, to some other country which allows abortion. Why? Because people do not feel in harmony with, with that aspect of it. Just a simple perspective. So here you need to understand that there are certain red lines you need to know. Are you able to cross it? Or is it like a different misunderstanding, or is it that you need to tell the states, the religious establishment, that this breaches international laws which we already have. This breaches our ability to implement. This does not help us. You need to change your laws, or we as a state have to accommodate for you. There's another aspect of it as well. I'm not saying the state is right here. I'm saying the state has to, if it leads this transformation, it has to accommodate the other sources of that society. Unless you say religious has no say in our society, ethics has no say in our society, pride has no say in our society, then you have robots. You don't have, you don't have people. That's a different aspect of it. So what I'm saying, something has to give way. Otherwise, you will be unproductive. You may say, I am happy to be unproductive. I say, good luck. But then you, could not, you would not have a collective society. Thank you, Excellency. Um, my name is Victoria Stewart-Jolly. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Cambridge, um, looking at democracy and Iraq, as it turns out. Um, my, my question goes to democracy. Um, you mention it as being vital for Iraq, but I would ask, 
does it need to be redefined in the context of your country? In as much as the Constitution very much creates an American-style um, system, although with parliamentary overtures, uh, but the power-sharing agreement that existed until 2010 and was then abandoned, which then saw Vice President Hashmi um, go off into exile and the various other things, where there were no longer the three vice presidents and then there were no longer the vice prime ministers. Is that system actually viable, or should you be looking to models like Lebanon, um, where it's much more about power sharing and less about um, winning governments and majority governments and opposition structures? I think the Iraqis uh, are living in a region which is not democratic. Their heritage is not democratic. Their party systems are not democratic. Uh, it's in the Kurdish region, it's more tribal-oriented. In South, it's more religious-oriented. It's not democratic. So they don't have the legacy of democracy. Democracy <coughs> is an aspiration. It's a need. So how do you fulfill your needs? It's not an easy, easy way. <coughs> but it's a need. If you go about the American model, which I, I talk about in the paper, and that's worthy of mentioning it now, it focuses on the nation building rather than on the state building. I, I think it's a major strategic mistake of the American, and that was they tried to help us in defining what nation is about. We are still yet to find out what nation is about. We don't have that relationship. It's been fractured. It doesn't mean that Iraq was not a nation at one time. I'm saying the current nation of Iraq is fractured. ISIS systematically destroyed, tried to destroy the fabric of that aspect of it. So now we need to gel it together. Democracy should help us because of tolerance. And democracy doesn't mean one person, one vote, and nothing else. It needs to be a much more sophisticated approach. It requires a longer road than saying, let's make an example, women's 25% share. Okay, do you have the caliber for it? Is that the right way of doing it? If you want to engineer it that way, you need to have a long view, a roadmap for doing it, rather than now. I think now, for example, the parliamentary system we have is ineffective because we are too much in disagreement on a lot of narrative which I talked about then. They need to do a lot of soul-searching between themselves to agree on basic issues for them to be able to have a, an efficient and effective way of operating. So is it a presidential system I'm saying? I don't know. What I'm saying is the current decision-making process within Iraq, and this is me as a private citizen and somebody who's no longer in the government, the current decision-making process in Iraq is ineffective, and it certainly has a danger of people feeling that democracy produces chaos, and therefore I don't want a democracy. People start talking about, uh, and this is a contradicting term, but that's what people talk about, a just dictator. How could you have a just detail? I don't know. I don't think it's as possible. As I don't think you have that even in movies. But let's say for argument's sake, democracy is at this moment is threatened because it's not being implemented right. Somebody buys a tool, doesn't know how to use it, he throws the tools away. Well, you need to know how to learn to use the tool. The tool has nothing wrong with it. Democracy as a tool can be used, but we need to know how to go about using it.
But was it the power sharing, the rough and ready consociationism, the rough and ready power sharing up until 2010? I probably disagree. It's fundamentally against democratic, by the way. Power, power sharing is fundamentally, literally goes and destroys any democratic in a sense of not one person, one vote. No. It's you bring in a, a, a minister, regardless whether he's competent or incompetent, because he has that face or that ethnicity. That fundamentally is not democracy. It's, it's, it's not... It's, uh, it's abusing, it's misabusing, it's uh, you're using the tool. It's, I give you a knife to, to, to use to cook for me, and you go and kill somebody with it. The knife is a knife. So what do you do with it? Is that what we need to do? So power sharing is useful as a concept, but the way it's been implemented, it's, I can assure you, is very abusive. I don't know. I mean, one other aspect, which I don't talk about here in the paper, which is what is missing in Iraq, I think fundamentally we, have, we are missing founding fathers to the state. We are missing those who are able to comprehend what it takes to build the state away from their mini ethno-sectarian background into others. To understand that when you bring somebody who is not capable into a position of, of, of responsibility, the ramification of that... The, the, the destructive element of it is much worse or more than saying that you have a Kurdish minister or a Shia or Sunni. Okay, give them a good, a good deal factor of having a Kurds or a Sunnis and Shias. Okay, but is that sustainable? It's not. You're buying your way out and it's not buying it as well. First you, then you, and then you. So three up there, sir. Hello. Um, Rinad Mansour with Chatham House. Uh, and LSE. And LSE, yeah. Sorry. Thank because you, you came best. and you said I'm part of LSE. I, I, did, I am, I am. So don't abuse the system. <laughs> I take back Chatham House. Um, I wonder, because you spent a good amount of time with the theoretical, setting up your theoretical model, but not enough applying it to Iraq specifically. I wonder if you can, let's pick a few leaders who we have in Iraq, like Nuri al-Maliki or Muqtada Sadr. or personalizing it now. I no, no, it's that. not. I'm, I'm picking Masoud Barzani or... Talk about names here. I, don't, I, I really leaderships. don't want to talk about names. You don't want to talk about the leaders in Iraq? No, no. I don't want to talk about specific names. Okay, Give let's me. talk about parties. The Kurdistan Democratic Party or anyway, the, 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 the Sajrists, what have been their problems with finding this social harmony? And do you feel... I start by saying that they, they are not democratic to start with. Yeah, so what have been some of their more sort of specific issues with combining the, th two, the three factors? And do you think there are any leaders emerging that are better able to, or potentially better able to bring these factors together? I am finding it difficult to find the right leaders to, to, to accommodate the challenge. For a number of reasons. One is, excuse me, the system in Iraq has been created not to allow creativity to be included. So it's very rigid. And the current system will not be able to produce better than what we have now. Something has to give way. That's something, uh, that's one of the reasons I left the government, is something has to give way. And the current system cannot, will not be able to be creative to, de to develop. That's one aspect. And so I don't talk about names because I seriously mean the problem is in the themes of what we have, not individuals. It's not the brands we are worried about. The theme of no, talking about muhasasa or, uh, I don't know, quota system, that is a destructive element because that doesn't give you quality. These parties are not democratic. They are not. 
by simply looking at the same leaders for since 1980 up to now, you have the same leaders leading these parties. How democratic are they? That's not. That's a, that's a, a prerequisite of somebody not having the tools and, and uh, preaching something he doesn't practice. So that's a, a, a problem here. The other aspect of it is we need to look at a new breed of politicians who, A, have learned from these mistakes, and B, are willing to change to accommodate the end game. We have not yet defined what's the end game for Iraq. Where is the right mix in these three circles, in the various narratives, for us to be in somewhat in harmony? Where is it? I, we have not had that discussion. I can't, I, it's not right of me to give you a utopia solution here. It's, 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 it's against my ethics, against my uh, sort of uh, professionalism to give you a utopia. It's not. So what I'm saying is I'm giving you the tool to diagnose the problem. This is more a diagnosis tool than a prognosis. I admit to that. But I think majority of our diagnosis has been wrong. You have a major problems. I'm giving you paracetamol to sort it out. You, what you need in reality is a chemotherapy, radiotherapy, as I mentioned yesterday, lifestyle change, and certain limbs need to be taken out for the system to function. But That's how severe it is. What I take you to be suggesting, or let me put it another way, are you suggesting that a new party or a new set of political parties should be formed that directly reject the Mahasasasas? No, the current parties, if it's somebody form a new party, I don't think it will work. Because tribally, culturally, politically, new party cannot emerge in this unhealthy environment. It has to go cross. It has to be within. It has to be. But it's a painful process we have to go through. New party on its own, a third way perspective will not work. The Kurds have tried it with Gulen. As a simple example, it will not work. Because the problem is too rooted. You're looking at the symptoms. I'm saying no. Look at the root causes of it. Okay. Sir. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, Gary Kent from the All-Party Parliamentary Group on the Kurdistan. Did, did I surprise you, Gary, with the presentation? A little, the yeah. Um, I want, you, you mentioned uh, chemotherapy. I want to talk about amputation. Uh, I did say a limb has to be taken out as well, so <laughs> I did admit to that. Is Iraq. Uh, last year, we, uh, a group of MPs went to Kirkuk, and it was very clear that there was no cooperation whatsoever between the Iraqi army and the Peshmerga, however convenient it would have been. This year we went to Mosul, very briefly I should add, and it was very clear that there's unprecedented cooperation between the Peshmerga and the Iraqi army which paradoxically uh, might lead to uh, a, a political dividend that would surprise people, which is that negotiations have now started, I mean, been formally yes. uh, initiated by the KRG for an amicable divorce, um, which is not going to happen anytime soon. And really what I want to ask is, uh, can, how, or should that process uh, take place? I mean, over what time period is it possible for there to be uh, an independent Kurdistan, a confederation with a, a, a rehabilitated Sunnistan? Imagine, well, imagine more widely. Okay, I mean, the, the, the current collaboration is useful. It's uh, confident-building measures. It's more short-term oriented in the fighting instances than the long-term stability of Iraq. The 
problem we have, Gary, is you talk about marriage of the KRG in Baghdad. You can't have a Catholic marriage, yet you have extramarital affairs. You can't do both. You feel in disharmony by having both. So for both parties, do they want to have a Catholic marriage? They have to get your formula right. They, they go with a divorce, it has to be amicable and looking after the babies and the child and the heritage and the house and the vision and everything else and the furniture and so on. So my, the current formula is, is at best is what you might say hypocritical. Because you talk about preaching something about family and your right. In both parties, I'm not saying who's at fault or, or not. What I'm saying is you need to have a sensible, mature discussion between the stakeholders, define your vision, where there's federation, co-federation, independent, and secondary. It's, it's, uh, I think both will lose out, by the way, by this uh, narrow-mindedness, because I think the world is thinking more in collaboration with each other in a number of manners, and we have a too big a risk. The wealth is there for us to work with each other. Iraq is not short of wealth. It's short of management. It's short of a vision. We need to have the right formula to talk about that vision. Sir. Uh, hi. Thank you, Ambassador. Uh, my name is Rob Wainwright. I'm Syria, Iraq, Lebanon, country manager with Christian Aid. Um, I have a question about Sunni identity, if I may. Um, <laughs> I think it would be fair to say that there's, there's something of a crisis of authority in, in Sunni Islam, uh, specifically with respect to jurisprudence. Um, the Sunni schools have been, uh, I suppose, weakened critically over the last couple of hundred years for many different reasons. Um, we see the rise of transnational Salafism, tele-evangelism, things like this. Um, I just wondered if you could address that problematic from an Iraqi standpoint. The, the, the issue is bigger than Iraqis, and I'll give you more uh, sort of uh, more generic answers. The issue we have now within the Sunni land, it has been hijacked by the Salafists, who have also, whose Salafism has been hijacked by jihadist Salafism. Mm. So you have a jihadist Salafism hijacking Salafism, Salafism hijacking Sunni Islam. The problem with jihadist Salafism, it does not allow the tolerance of the other. It cannot exist with the other. So here we have an issue where people or organizations promoting a narrative of intolerance with a self-destruct, by the way, a self-destruct, but the, 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 the issues or the, the, the uh, areas of destruction is not just themselves. It's other communities, other identities, other heritage sites, and so on. So the problem we have now is who is the loudest among the Sunni communities is the Salafist. Who is the loudest against the Salafist is jihadist Salafism. As a way of resolving the issue, taking some of the pain out, we need to target jihadist Salafism because it does not allow the, the identity of the other to exist. If you don't believe in my existence, how could I have an a discussion with you, let alone a vision? So at this moment, that jihadist Salafism does not create an environment within Sunni land to talk about a dialogue as to how do they develop, how do they go forward. Shias have different challenge, which is to do with so much diversity, it doesn't allow for uniformity, some consistency, some efficiency, or for the communities to move in the same direction. 
That's a different aspect of it. So here it's important that we get the right mix between the two, inter and intra. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I'm Oli Malhail from University of Westminster, and looking at the history of politics in the region, and also referencing your crossing over of the three pillars, does Iraq need a strong man or a strong woman before it can advance into a harmonious state? It needs a more efficient decision-making process, whether it is a collective with a similar vision or... Uh, a, a person who has the mandate with the vision, we certainly lack founding fathers. And those means people with the courage and the vision to drive this. Is a single person, can he be the savior? I don't think even Superman can help us now if we are alone and if we go about this way of doing it. If he has a mandate without the vision, he can't. If he doesn't have the team to implement the scale of the challenge I was talking about, then it will not help. Society do look for saviors, more so in our societies. We have the heritage of strong men. We have that. But if he cannot accommodate the diversity and try to cajole the society toward a certain na narrative, that has a danger of sort of pushing back in due time. Society, our society is a tribal society. So collective memory is important. That means th things cannot be forgotten. We have in our heritage a hundred year war for because of a camel. So that tells you, and this is not easy, so it tells you that time is somewhat irrelevant and we need to be careful how do we, how do we go about it. As a, what do we need? I think we need a faster decision-making process rather than just a saviour. Yes. Um, I'd like to go back to some of their previous comments, particularly about chemotherapy and amputation. Um, and also referring back to your own analysis that the area of commonality is very small. And... Is, do you see the potentiality for Iraq to break up? So you would have, for example, in the West, a Sunni West, a Kurdish North, a Shia South, and in which case, how would you see the geopolitics of the Middle East um, evolving from that situation? And given your last statement just now, is that things take a long time to evolve, and I imagine that Iraq would become fiefdoms again, whether democratic or not, is irrelevant. It's how it affects the rest of the Middle East. So I'd like your comments on that. The country itself is crucial in the, within the region. The region itself is crucial global geopolitics. So here you have the most complicated model, which is Iraq, maybe Syria, who is aspiring to, the, to become, uh, to have a utopian vision. How fast can you get there? The ability of the state of Iraq to develop, is, it has a lot of uh, horsepower it hasn't used. Its geography is a strong horsepower it can use to help its economy and development. 
and, and social cohesion. It's geography can. It's uh, wealth is another dimension. It's heritage is another. These are all pistons of your engine which you have not even switched on yet. It can develop much faster than others think because we are not relied on one character, one strength. But if it's not used, it becomes harder to pull that carriage or wagon with so much heavy weight put on it. So what we need to is to start instigating those aspects of it. Dividing the country on its own, how does it work? The ethno-sectarian issue or the diversity goes across, across communities, across tribes and others. So we can't have a clean cut of aspect of it. Certain ethnic cleansing has already taken place. Certain demographic changes has already been status. I give you that. Is that socially justice? Is it important? Is it, do you resign to that pact or do you want to take it back to some nostalgic perspective you have on it? That's a question for us to know. How much of the identity we have lost are we willing to uh, bring back or where cut or how much are we willing to say these are irreversible damage has taken place. That's the reality check we have not done yet ourselves on. So we need to do that reality check. We need to look at it in a very sober approach. Right, we've got ten minutes more. So, so this was one. So, this is a quick point. So to that effect, apologies, to that effect, I think we need to talk about tolerance as a theme. Because if, let's take an example. The issues we have in the south of Iraq has nothing to do with ethno-sectarian. It's to do with good governance, rule of law. We need to do that to develop. The issues we have in some of the provinces are nothing to do with nationality. It's to do with ethnicity. We need to accommodate that. If we don't talk about the the tolerance as a key theme, then I can assure you, divide the country, there will be inner problems more. Dividing the country itself will not be the solution, because its ripple effect geopolitically, and here I'm looking at geopolitically, will be significant, more adverse impact geopolitically. I don't think the country, from a, what you might call a GPS point of view, to the borders is breached. I think geopolitically it preserves it. But the cohesiveness of the country internally, I, I challenge that. I don't think it's cohesive enough yet. Right, there's a question here, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, you, no, well, yeah, you can be, right, you first, you second, and there's another question. Any more questions? Last call. Uh, you've already had a question, but you I haven't said you can be the final say, question. Say, 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 Did you? Yes, you want to twice. Uh, okay, so we have four last questions that I'll take together, and then that'll give sure. the ambassador five minutes. Yeah. Okay, uh, well, thank you for the speech. Um, I'm Sherry Gray from the um, sociology department here. Um, I'm, you mentioned different societies place different ways for the three pillars. I'm wondering, can this be changed, like for religion-dominant society change to a government-dominant society? And second, do you think it's easier for certain models to to achieve the harmony you mentioned compared to others? Certain societies, you mean? Uh, certain models, like um, it's easier, for example, it's easier for government-dominant society to achieve the harmony compared to, like, I don't know, a religion-dominant society. Yes. Okay, and then you? Uh, good afternoon, my name is Daniel Baghdadi. Um, I agree with everything you said, but it, it seems to me like 
there is a cancer growing in Iraq. And speaking metaphorically, what we are saying we should do is like hold a bake sale, which is, it's kind of ironic because the sugar in the cakes will fuel the cancer, but that's all the media tells you to do. So I agree with everything, we should do that, but it seems like we're ignoring the hidden sugar and poison. And we might not know what it is, but I don't know, now that you've left government, maybe you're in a better position to talk about what you might know the poison to be. Okay. Thank you. So. Hi, my name is Leith Rabaidi, and I work as a civil servant here in the UK. Um, my question would be is, could you elaborate on the good governance idea you have, um, the accountability in the government, how does this work, how, what are the challenges? And finally. Thank you, Ambassador. My name is Yusuf al Khoui from al Khoui Foundation. I want to just explore the Latin American model, which is very similar to the situation in the Middle East, where faith leaders and social scientists had a meaningful dialogue to try to sort out the social ills of their communities. That was in the later part of last century. Can you envisage that happening within Iraq and the Middle East? Well, thank you very much, all four of you. I mean, let's answer the last question first. I still think that society does not think that the problem is in itself and expect the problems to be in the other. When I, whenever I go to Iraq, I go every few months and have discussion with all the various leaders, majority of them, and they always point to me the problem is in X, Y, and Z. Hardly I hear them say, I have, I'm part of the problem, and I have to pull my way to be part of the solution. So I don't think enough self-diagnosis has taken place, or soul-searching, I like to call it, and therefore... They, people don't think that we need, for example, if, I, if we think that there's a problem, we need to say, okay, we need to enhance substantially our social sciences uh, skill sets, whether it's bringing on surveys, all kinds of things of that nature. We are not yet there. So uh, uh, to, to me, I don't think we yet we understand yet the scale of the challenge in fixing that. We don't have sensors, we don't have surveys collectively as a society, so we have a problem there. The, I think what took place in other countries, in, in South America and others, is when the people realize, officials of the government, officials of leaders of communities, realize that they need the other, they cannot develop themselves without the other support. That level of acknowledgement is still lacking in Iraq. You'll see it in TVs, you'll see it in others, in tribal leaders pinpointing on the government, government saying that the others are not helping religious establishment, putting problems in Friday prayers on others as well. I still think that uh, each stakeholder in Iraq need to reverse their vision and say, I'm part of the problem, how could I be part of the solution? That psyche is not there. ISIS should have been, or Daesh should have been enough as a wake-up wake call. I still doubt that they, it was enough as a wake-up call. Do we need Western Daesh to wake us up? That's the challenge we have. That's, by the way, is a key challenge we have in Iraq. The problem we have is we are become sometimes insensitive to the to the level of uh, challenges we have, and therefore we say, well, we put up with fighting. Okay, you need to know what you are losing out by not 
by lack of focus on the challenges we have. The sorry, the I think the you talk the governance governance questions. Part of the governance is to admit to understand who do you need to to help you in the development. At this moment, how much of our legislations are passed on to religious establishments to get their buy-in? How fast do we do it? Or social scientists, or whomever is party or a stakeholder in that specific legislation? I'll give me an example. Last week, a major legislation passed by where 24 hours ago nobody was talking about it, which has to do with political uh, PMUs. Last month, a major legislation talked about in relation to amnesty without due consideration of what's talking about. Two days ago, I saw six different versions of the law, which was PMU law, which was talking about. Six different versions. Where is the good governance in talking about the same law, six different versions? It's some kind of disorganization. So organization is a key element for you to talk about governance. Corruption, transparency, others. It need, trans, corruption needs to be a social uh, national project, not a government project i.e. religious establishment need to have a significant say in addressing now. We, let me give you an example. We have this Shia festive nowadays of Arba'in and others. I, I question how much of those who participate in these aspects do take bribe, i.e. what's the impact of religion in my daily activities? How much am I ethical in when I deal with these religious testes and for me to be a righteous person, a positive player? My concern about Iraq, and that is Shiism as an example, is much more cultural than religious. It's not impacting your ethicality of the issue. You're looking at it as a more as a Shia, as a culture, as a festive, rather than as a doctrine of work and ethics. So to me, that's one of the biggest danger. And same in other communities in relation to Sunni Islam or others as well. It's becoming a problem. It's like you know the various leaders talking about protectors of, Islam, of Sunni Islam, and in reality, they are not. So this is the same problem we have. So the question here, I think, Dalia, what is the poison? What's driving Iraq to uh, to the extreme state that it's in? People's, uh, uh, the system in Iraq does not have self-correction. The Iraqi DNA at this moment does not, talk, does not reflect back on the self. It reflects on others. So at the end of the day, people do not take responsibility for their action or the, for the society's action. It's, it's a, an, an immediate, direct 
uh, adverse impact of dictatorship, you become self-centered or egocentric or whatever terms you want to use. And collectively, we are egocentric societies. And that's, to me, the major challenge. That's a flip. That's the first turning point we need to. And the final question was the, the final question is is can the three can the balance between the three pillars be changed and it is one system better at well, reducing the problem we have in the region and Iraq as well is nation state as a model we are still don't understand it. For a nation state to produce as a model post-second, post-first world war, you need to give rule of law as predominant aspect of it. You need your government institutions to have the lead in the society. We as society, Arab countries as society, Arab Spring primarily, meant that the 20th century passed by the region without few understanding of what nation state is about. So nation state is still not ingrained in our DNA as a society, and as a result, we have issues. So who is the, by the way, there is no, uh, any of these circles are organic. Ideas comes, a uh, culture idea becomes a religious, a religious idea becomes a culture narrative, uh, state are formed versus on a specific narrative. ISIS, by the way, they tried to get rid of one circle by forcing a certain thing, declaring their own state, therefore they are the state. Now ISIS tried to merge all three circles into one. That was it, because they thought, seriously, that's how they thought it is. The Japanese situation in pre-Second World War, Germany, Nazism, is circling all three into one. It's the most effective way of operating. If it's the wrong narrative, if it's an evil narrative, it's the most destructive machinery. And you have it in ISIS, you have it in Nazism, you have it in other countries as well. Right, well, that's a a good uh, note to end on. I'd like to thank everyone for turning out on this very cold and wintry day, but I'd especially like to thank Lugman Faley, former ambassador of of Iraq to the United States, for giving us a fascinating insight into his thinking, and uh, you all now have a copy of that in a more concrete form. So thank you very much. Thank you.